I feel like language is what completes a culture and it's what completes like a people because we look to the language for histories, for where we are, where we come from, and all of our stories, all of our our spiritual beliefs, those are all present within the language. And the more we speak it, the more we give that power and it'll turn around and empower our people. Bonjour, hello, welcome to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Leah Lem. And I'm your other host, Cole Primo Miigwech, for joining us today. Native Lights is more than a podcast and radio show, right? Mm-hmm. At its core, a place for Native folks to tell their stories. Each and every week, we have captivating conversations with great guests from all different sorts of backgrounds. We're talking musicians, teachers, community leaders, doctors. They have a wondrous mixture of passions and we talk to them about their gifts and how they shared them with the community and finding a purpose in our lives and amplifying Native voices. That's the goal. Leah, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, it's, a, it's been a slightly stressful period of my life because we are in the process of purchasing a home. So, wow. Yes, I'm knocking on wood. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not official yet, but it's... it's right in the the home stretch here so the home i was gonna stretch. ask i was gonna ask you leah if you had any tips or anything for new homeowners save your money <laughs> that's what we've been that's what we've been doing you know Not to get to this house, process <laughs> but for your utilities oh, hot yes. water heater i don't know anything boiler what else do we have we have our septic system you, you wouldn't yeah. water softener you name it, have a have an emergency fund for those things because you never know when it turns <laughs> cold and your heat doesn't work, you're going to want to be able to be prepared and uh, pay people. <laughs> when you uh, moved into your houses, did that happen during the winter like this is going to happen? <laughs> no. no. Heck no, it was like... <laughs> summer just boiling hot outside no problem (laughs) so what what really was the difficulty was painting when it was warm outside oh yeah i can't wait to because we're going to be definitely painting a bunch and thankfully it'll be through the winter and i won't sweat as much i'll still sweat plenty but um that's definitely a priority of ours but thank you yes i was very curious i know there's so much that goes into it watching all the youtube videos you know so mm-hmm. <laughs> but back right. but back to the show can't wait to uh speak with our guest today eileen bass eileen is hunk papa lakota muskogee creek and a citizen of the sac and fox nation of oklahoma eileen is currently an undergraduate student at the university of minnesota twin cities who is passionate about indigenous narratives, language revitalization, tribal histories, supporting native youth and more. Um, In the summer of 2023, she was also accepted into the Minnesota Historical Society's Native American Undergraduate Museum Fellowship Program. So I can't wait to hear about that and much more. And here she is, she just joined us. Thank you, Kolia, for inviting me and Hamitakiyapi, Elena Makiyapiye. Thank you 
Mokpapa Lakota, Ga Muscogee Creek, Ga Sacken Fox Nation of Oklahoma, Iwichakiapi, Sagega Besteke, Enamawapi Ish, Sacken Fox Nation, um, Enamawapi. So just to kind of break that down, again, I said hello, my relatives. My English name is Eileen, but I'm Ankhpapa Lakota, I'm Muscogee Creek, and I'm Sacken Fox Nation. I'm also Sacken Fox Nation of Oklahoma, but um, I'm enrolled as Sacken Fox. So just to kind of be like transparent about the intertribal relationship that I have with like kind of everybody. So I live in Minnesota, I live in Minneapolis, and I'm attending the U of M studying anthropology and English with a minor in creative writing. And I'm also studying Dakota language. And it's become really important to me over the past, I'd say like year and a half. So I'm very happy to be involved with those kinds of projects and then, you know, see where that takes me. All right. Great. We like, we like to, you know, tag that question by just asking how you're doing and how's the family doing? I'm doing pretty good, pretty well, aside from having like a little bit of a sinus infection, but it's, the end of the semester, I think that most students would say that they're pretty busy at this time. I certainly agree. But if you keep working hard, then you'll reap the fruits of that labor. So I'm just trying to keep my head on straight. And I think, yeah, my family's okay, too. How are you guys? Yeah, no, good. Good, good, good. Thank you. Is there anything that's at the top of your mind, either you're spending a lot of time thinking about or that you're kind of geeking out about today? Actually, that's a very good question. I feel like with the various organizations that I work with, there's definitely something about retaining Dakota presence here in Minneapolis. And even though I'm like technically not enrolled, you know, I've had great grandparents who are enrolled as like Sisseton, you know, maybe close to 100 years ago. But actually, I, I can think of a few schools around here who don't really incorporate Dakota language into the curriculums because it's like a budget issue. They'd have to ask for like funding or grant funding. I'm just thinking about like the fact that a lot of activism isn't really based around like this being like Dakota homelands. And it's like a historical thing to kind of think about. Actually, last night I went through a meeting for Palestine with the Red Nation. And that was like such a I was so mind blown, but um, Nick Estes did a really good job just explaining that this is like Minnesota Makoche. And like if people relate land back with the fact that we're in Dakota homelands and Dakota were technically exiled, we should focus on like, you know, retaining the cultural continuity of the people who are here originally and support that in our school system. So, and that applies to the U of M too, where I attend school. So that's actually kind of Part of like my part of why I do language as well. Great. Uh, you you mentioned that in the last year and a half, your passion for like Dakota language began. Could you talk about you know how that process began? What sparked that passion? So, I think about five years ago, actually, this is whenever the Minneapolis American Indian Center was still having in-person classes, and I was told that they had like conversational Dakota classes in their basement, and this was like on Tuesdays and Thursdays during the evening. So. I knew that I couldn't attend the U of M that semester. So I just decided to take advantage of like the free classes. And I got along well with the teacher at the time, but then I had to stop going because I had to go to school the next semester and I was really busy. And so I think at the time I knew that Dakota language is important to me because 
it's a dialect of Lakota language. And ideally I'd be learning a dialect of like the Standing Rock community, which is in South Dakota and North Dakota. So that's pretty far away. And it, it would have been convenient for me to just start taking Dakota. But like, I feel like a lot of, whether you're Lakota or Dakota, you feel drawn to just, you know, the Dakota language programs here because it is accessible. And especially if it's virtual, you kind of just get to know more of the community. So I came back like maybe in 2021 to Minneapolis. And then in 2022, later that spring, I started taking Dakota classes virtually again through the MAIC. And then I ended up becoming friends with the teacher who was, you know, taking care of that. And then I ended up working at the Dakota Api Wahokbi, which is the Dakota language nest on the U of M campus. And that was suggested to me through my teacher at the time, Shashoka Duta, who was teaching level one Dakota. So it's like, I was technically like I've been, I'd say I've been consistently learning for a year and a half, but my journey started like before then, just like whatever piqued my interest was like started before then. So I've been kind of learning on and off, but I'd, I wouldn't say I'm an advanced speaker at all. I'm definitely like more intermediate. That's my comfort level. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today, we're speaking with Eileen Bass, who is Hunkpapa Lakota, Muskogee Creek, and a citizen of the Second Fox Nation of Oklahoma. Eileen is currently an undergraduate student at the University of Minnesota who is interested in Indigenous narratives, language revitalization, tribal histories, supporting Native youth, and more. Do you have feelings that go along with learning the language? Anything that pops up like empowerment or I know sometimes for me with Ojibwe Moen, I feel a little vulnerable or lost sometimes. But yeah, any feelings that pop up for you? Yeah, and I can definitely relate with how you're feeling because I'm, since I'm also Sac and Fox, my dad's family, his paternal family spoke two dialects of like Sock language, which is Bakyatuan and Sock, and then Meskwaki, which is, I believe it's Meskwak, Atoan. I started taking Meskwaki language classes, which is another dialect, again, of that language, just because it was like accessible. But that's the thing. There's like an ease when it comes to learning the language because you are supported by like teachers and other students, maybe at your level. They may not completely be comfortable or confident with it yet, but my grandfather actually helped start the sock revitalization, like a sock language program in the 90s. And so he recorded his voice with like two other people who were also first speakers and they created an, like an app maybe 10 years ago and they've updated the app since then, but the sock language program is still going and they have like a lot of resources for people who are members of the Sock and Fox Nation of Oklahoma. And so because it was like in the 70s at the time, I'm just like, I'm like in my late 20s and this is someone who was like a first speaker and he decided to do this in the 1990s around the time that I was born. I feel like, you know, my path with language revitalization is really important to me. I feel like learning it here because I'm in Minnesota and it's like Dakota people are still here and they're still present. It's just like a, a way of like kind of honoring where I am and being very grateful for the people and the community that have been helpful 
with me, even if it doesn't have anything to do with language. So I feel like language is what completes a culture and it's what completes like a people because we look to the language for histories, for where we are, where we come from, and all of our stories, all of our spiritual beliefs, those are all present within the language. And the more we speak it, the more we give that power and it'll turn around and empower our people and you know, it'll empower the next generation. So we keep that alive for them and we keep it alive for our ancestors. So that's just how I, I feel about learning languages. I want to be like kind of a polyglot where I learn like Sauk and Lakota at some point. But for now, it's just like Meskwaki and Dakota. That's great. Are you, are you from Minnesota? I'm actually from Illinois. So I'm from a very small town and very like in the middle of Illinois, Decatur, Illinois. But my mom's family has lived here since the 70s. So she's, you know, her family's all Papa Lakota and they moved around, but they've been settled in like the, kind of like the South side, I would say, you know, for a few decades at this point. So part of the reason why I moved here is also just to reconnect right. with them. So you mentioned the Dakota Language Nest. I just want to hear a little bit more about that program. It seems pretty interesting. Absolutely. We actually are in our second year. Last year was the pilot year. And we had only, I would say, like five children involved. And one of those families, or two of those families, were not Dakota. But this year, we have had at least 11 kids enrolled. And it's kind of pending, but our cap is at 12. And at least, I would say, eight of the 11 children are Dakota or Lakota. And so we've had like a first speaker for our lead teacher. We had an assistant teacher who was enrolled at Rosebud. And then there's me. There's another teacher who's Asante Dakota. She's from here, but it's like you always have to deal with the, the banter and diaspora. But then we have another assistant teacher who is Washichu. But pretty much Shoshoka Duta just started this with the University of Minnesota Child Development Laboratory School. And this has been like a project that was in the works for like five or six years. And he was really inspired by the revitalization efforts in New Zealand and Hawaii to, you know, turn around and create this on the U of M campus. And it's incredible that, you know, we are able to even have this space for our Dakota or Lakota children, because I don't think that they're teaching in-person Dakota classes at the U of M anymore. And so the fact that we're still speaking Dakota like every day at least every weekday, you know, on the U of M campus or, you know, in proximity to it is pretty, you know, it's like something I, I go in there every day. I work there every morning, but, you know, it's just important for me to like hear the slightest Dakota phrase or when you see the children comprehend what you're saying to them in Dakota, it's like, it just means that it's working. And so we have to keep it going. I mean, that's got to give you even more drive to do what you're doing, to see that in the children's faces. What's it like to see that in, in action? I think that children are definitely easier to teach and that they just don't need words or let's hard, it's like hard for an older student. I would say like we have like the 15 minute classes, which is every day, but that's only 15 minutes of someone's time that they're like kind of committed. They're writing things down. They're more focused. And in this environment, you can like, they're able to hear the language at like from the, you know, from the time that they get in to the classroom, which is around eight o'clock in the morning whenever they leave which is like closer to 4 30 in the evening and so during that time like we're talking to them about food and the language you know they're able to comprehend like if we ask them if they're hungry if we ask them what they did last night 
we asked them if they slept well. Most of the time, like, it just kind of depends how they're feeling. But it's like, you know, they either say, the boys say how, and then the girls would say Han. But it's like, you just ask them questions. And the ones who are easily, I would say, like, the ones who are more talkative are probably going to be easier to teach. And, but it's also just a learning curve for children, because sometimes it's, you know, the ones who are quiet, they, they just happen to be listening. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today we're speaking with Eileen Bass, who is Hunkpapa Lakota, Muskogee Creek, and a citizen of the Sac and Fox Nation of Oklahoma. Eileen is currently an undergraduate student at the University of Minnesota who is interested in Indigenous narratives, language revitalization, tribal histories, supporting Native youth, and more. So I saw this in... The Circle, I believe, that you were named the Minnesota Historical Society's Undergraduate Museum Fellowship, or you became a part of that program. And part of that was digitizing tribal newspapers. Yeah, so it was incredible to be part of the Native American Undergraduate Museum Fellowship at the History Center this past summer. I believe that they reached out to six different people and they invited them as a part of like a fellowship. And then like it was an it's like a hybrid with an internship. So the fellowship was really taking in seminars and learning about like more of museum practices, more of like, you know, history center practices, tribal museums, how to like learn from people who are a part of the different historic sites in Minnesota. We later visited those sites in person in August, but during the month of July, I would say our internships took up like, you know, most of that month because we all had separate internships. So Mine was for digitization of tribal newspapers. And I worked on We Speak of Ourselves, which was a newspaper from the late 70s and 80s. That's like, those are the issues that I worked on specifically. I physically scanned copies of the Lac de Flambeau tribal newspapers, which were pretty like large to, to kind of handle. You had to run it through like a very wide scanner. But basically looking into those newspapers was finding out about tribal sovereignty and all of these like issues that are still very relevant today but you're reading about like actors native actors native musicians native activists from that time period which i worked from like 19 around 1990 to 1996 i believe it's pretty hasty process but i really loved it and i miss it that kind of work and keeping the physical copies of of something like that is you know it's important to digitize things for accessibility but i hope someday that there is a space for those physical papers. That's just my personal opinion. That was going to be my first question when I heard that you were digitizing tribal newspapers. Like what was happening decades ago that stuck out to you? Yeah. Whoa. (laughs) Right. Actually, I found a couple of family members in there that like I had no idea that they were involved Mm -hmm. with some kind of activism at the time. My my great grandfather, Reginald Birdhorse, was at the time protesting the we call it the Minnesota, Minnesota River, the Minnesota River. And he did other activism work at the time, you know, protested the fact that they're mining the Black Hills for uranium. But I think that there was flooding because of a dam on the Minnesota River at the maybe 19, I want to say the early 1990s. He was in the paper and as a representative of Standing Rock, was talking about that. I saw another relative of mine who was an actor and he was passing through and was kind of seen in Chicago. He did some solidarity work for the American Indian movement. 
And so just seeing like their name, I would take like a picture, you know, and send it to like my mom. And I guess it was in the, like the Lockheed Flying Bar Travel newspaper. Like, you know, this was in their reservations, like newspaper. And they just covered like so many people across the end of country. It was like a definite presence, whether they're mentioning like Russell Means and like why he did like the movie Pocahontas. But then they also would cover like very local things that were like, you know, about the community, just sending out like alerts for this program or even like putting up Ojibwe language in the middle of the newspaper, like they had Ojibwe language lessons in the middle of the papers. And so I was like, this is a really thorough paper and it's covering like what's on the res and what's off the res. And I feel like that knowledge is just to be familiar with solidarity and like intertribal relationships, but also within your own tribe. I don't know. It's just like, I wish that that was something that was accessible to everybody. Another thing I want to bring up is that you're a McNair scholar for 2023. So the McNair program is, it comes from the TRIO program. It's a program at the U of M for, well, the McNair program firstly is for like first generation underrepresented students, like, and it's usually minority students, but also being able to offer the opportunity to pursue a research project for 10 weeks during the summertime with a mentor and ideally they have a PhD, they also work at the University of Minnesota, but it's the opportunity to kind of explore your major and what you want to study in grad school and just kind of get that experience of writing papers, of reading, of like, you know, looking at the research process and being able to have like a mentor kind of guide you. But also there's well, what McNair really helped with was being able to access like different graduate programs, being able to narrow down what you want, being able to understand how to apply for grad school and understanding like the tuition and the costs and like why you would want to move to what are the benefits and what are the like the expenses of really applying to grad school, but making sure that you're prepared. I think preparation was like the key thing with McNair. It helps in the graduate applications because if an admissions committee is looking at your paper, they see that you did McNair, they're like, you know, oh, this person kind of understands what graduate school, that research process was like, or what it was like to complete a research paper in like a very short amount of time. So that was a really good experience. And I'm very grateful to McNair for letting me into that program. And your, your research project was pretty fascinating, you know, Dakota activism. I actually wanted to study urban relocation in Minneapolis. And I was inspired because of my father. He was part of the Indian Removal, like Urban Relocation Act, which was taking him from like his family from Tulsa to Los Angeles, California, which is where he was born. So that was in 1956. And I wanted to draw comparisons between like Los Angeles and Minneapolis. Once I got in touch with my mentor, he narrowed it down to me just talking about Minneapolis, but also about Dakota presence and like the American Indian movement and what kind of factors played into the American Indian movement as to where they are. I was mostly influenced by cultural anthropology, but my mentor was Nick Estes and he was coming from like a historian's perspective. So we were able to come together on like ethno-historic documentation about what the American Indian movement was doing specifically in Minneapolis, what kind of survival schools were like helping retain cultural continuity, which, you know, would apply with the Dakota language classes that they would have offered for students. Did any kind of history inform the American Indian movement? The fact that this is like Dakota people had to be removed from here, like the city of Minneapolis couldn't have been established as a settler colonial project without Dakota people being removed. And so I really had to go back into those treaties and explain the 
the ongoing consequences of like the University of Minnesota. And then if you think about it, like even with Bedote and Forest Snelling or Bede Makaska and like Calhoun, you know, why were these places being renamed? And they weren't like a lot of people fight still for things to have Dakota names on it, even though it's Minnesota, Makoche. It's like Minnesota is where the land reflects the sky. And so that was the initial concept, you know, just kind of understanding that Dakota sovereignty and whether it had a relationship with the American Indian movement and the research kind of surprised me, but um, I'd say that there was solidarity with the American Indian movement and the Dakota activism, but the Dakota activism is informed by something different. So like the American Indian movement was informed by a lot of the policies at the time, which marginalized native people in general and AIM had to come up with the Indian patrol. They had to come up with their own survival schools. They had to really combat a lot of the discrimination that was going on. But the Dakota activism is definitely informed by its like commitment to cultural integrity and its history, their history, you know, collectively in Minnesota. Wonderful. So Eileen, for other students or potential students who want to study language, do you have any recommendations on how to take action? I would say that depending on like your circumstances, I know that it's not easily accessible for everybody to come to the University of Minnesota and take classes. That was like my situation five years ago. I still managed to come to the American Indian Center. And at that time, they didn't have virtual classes, so it was mainly in person. But I wanted to always come, first of all, kind of network and meet people, but speaking or learning the language and just kind of like breaking out of like any shyness when it comes to kind of meeting people. Like they kind of, like the thing with learning language is that like you kind of have a script. And so you're kind of eased into saying things that you normally would feel like you wouldn't have to say if you're just meeting people like casually. So the language kind of helps break people out of their shells, I feel, and it helps, it does help create community. So attending, you know, language programs, if they're free, if they're virtual, accessible, that's all the better. But also practicing with people, that's another key point to doing these classes is that you can always meet people and kind of find community. If you're a Native student and you want to attend like a book club or you want to come to the American Indian Family Center or just other like places where they're leading workshops on crafting or that's going to help you network as well. And when it comes to learning the language, just be able to access like a dictionary, be able to access anything that you feel like is going to be useful, have a notebook. Thank you so much. You know, clearly you got a lot of stuff going on. Do you have any future projects you're looking forward to? Yeah, um, actually, I am a current interpretation assistant at the Wiseman Art Museum. And so one of our projects this coming spring is to create a like an interpretive landmark guide instead of a like a museum guide just so people are educated about the land that the Wiseman is on. And so creating materials in Dakota language, creating like an overview of the history, and even it could be in Dakota language as well. Probably going to learn about more stuff as time goes on, but it's just a good time to be here and learn the language. Eileen is so fun. I, I, I didn't have that much going on when I was a, wow. in college, I'll tell you what. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's great to see, you know, all the great work she's doing and, you know, digitizing tribal newspapers. Like, this is important stuff. So, oh, yeah. Beekwitch to Eileen Bass. 
Eileen is Hunkpapa Lakota, Muskogee Creek, and a citizen of the Sac and Fox Nation of Oklahoma. Eileen is currently an undergraduate student at the University of Minnesota doing amazing work. And uh, the future looks bright in native country. Absolutely. Indeed. I'm Cole Primo. And I'm Leah Lem. Miigwech for listening. Gigawabamin. Gigawabamin. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.